Good morning, everybody. Hey, I have some Oakland friends in the crowd this morning, so it's exciting. Uh, I also was at the men's retreat the last couple of days and uh, became a very enthusiastic supporter of the cornhole tournament, <clears throat> and so my voice is shot today, so just bear with me, um, but we'll have fun. It'll be a good time. All right, to get us started this morning, um, I want to let you know about some other thing that we have going on, um, sort of related to this idea of, of giving and being in the hands, of, uh, hands and feet of Jesus. As you all are very aware, our, our area, Northern California, even into Oregon, has been ravaged by fires here over the last couple of weeks. And so, uh, in particular, we uh, know and are connected to people in the Redding area and uh, feel compelled to do something to... Uh, try to be a blessing, particularly to churches there who are doing the good work of helping people try to get back on their feet after the devastation of the car fire. So uh, every month we, we take a care and compassion offering. That's usually the, the fourth or fifth Sunday, depending on how many Sundays there are in a month. But we're going to bump that up to next Sunday. So just want to put that out there for you. Our care and compassion offering this month is going to go uh, probably to a church in Reading who, again, is doing good work helping people who have been victimized by the fire. So please keep that in mind. Come next week with backpacks and supplies and uh, with an opportunity to give uh, towards that. So I want to begin by praying about that, and then we'll jump into our, our conversation here, okay? So pray with me. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we have seen and are feeling the effects of the fires that are ravaging uh, our state, we pray, God, that they would be put out quickly and soon, that you would be with those who are fighting the fires, that you would keep them safe and strong and uh, provide them with just uh, a surprising amount of energy and strength uh, to help with the task of putting that out. We pray that people would, could, would be protected, that there would be no more loss of life or uh, damage uh, to significant property, and that uh, people begin be able to begin to move forward uh, with the process of, of uh, putting their life back together after this devastation, God. So we, uh, we ask that uh, you would use uh, whatever we are able to do uh, to be a blessing and to be a part of helping people um, restore and, and renew uh, their lives that have been devastated by these fires. Now, God, we ask that you would be with us as we turn our attention to Scripture. Would you soften our hearts uh, would you give us the ears to hear what we need to hear this morning, and then give us the courage to respond in the way that, that we need to respond. We pray all this in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. amen. All right, we're, we continue on in this uh, Pilgrims series. We've been looking at uh, Psalms, and so what I want us to do, we've done this a couple of times. We've read these together out loud to remind us that these were songs that were sung communally by pilgrims who are making their way to Jerusalem for a festival. So what I want us to do this morning, maybe a new element to this, is actually to stand. So if you wouldn't mind, if you're able, stand with me, and we're going to read Psalm 123 together up here on the screen. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God, till he has mercy upon us. 
Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. All right, you may be seated. Good reading. <laughs> Let's start here. Um, about a year ago, Mercedes released a marketing campaign, a very unique marketing campaign called Grow Up. <laughs> and the campaign explores through a series of short films the rules that we're supposed to follow as we grow up, as we get older. Rules like settle down, get a real job, start a family. And there's a, a number of other ones that they explore as, as well. And what they do in each of these films is, is Mercedes is attempting to show us that reality is actually way messier than the rules make it seem. It's not quite that straightforward to get a job, settle down, start a family. In one film, we see an older man quit his job and try to reconcile with his son. In another film, we see a young man try to pick up the pieces of his life after his wife leaves him. And in a third film, we see new parents try to figure out how to deal with the reality that their life is no longer going to be one of freedom and partying and doing whatever they want because of this child that they are caring for. And again, there's a handful of, of, of other films exploring different rules and, and the, again, the reality that these rules don't always make sense. And Mercedes has been lauded for this approach. They've gotten a lot of uh, positive critical feedback for this. I think part of it is just because it's a unique way of marketing. But also, the, the films are really well done. They're, they're kind of hard to watch, honestly, but they're really well done, very gritty. And, and so they've been praised for their honest assessment, their honest reflection of modern life and values. And I find this campaign to be very interesting for a, a couple of different reasons, okay? For decades... Marketing and advertising has been aspirational, almost by definition. Sometimes those aspirations are about function and efficiency, right? Buy our product and your life will get easier. You'll have less stress. Things will be more organized. Sometimes those aspirations are about pleasure. Buy our product and you will have more fun, more sex, more rock and roll in your life. And then sometimes those aspirations are about ideals. Buy our product if you want to be cool, if you want to be hip, if you want to be kind of on the inside of what's, what's happening, if you want to be cutting edge. What is amazing and profound and maybe even a little bit disturbing about these Mercedes ads is that they are what we might call post-aspirational. As you watch these films, there's no promise of your life getting better. No promise of your life becoming more efficient or even more pleasurable. No offer of your best life now by becoming a Mercedes owner. After submerging you into these really intense stories for a handful of minutes about, again, how the, the rules fail to work for us, this lack of meaning that there is in our life, each one ends with the word drive. Mercedes is, is selling us on this. No one knows what it means to grow up anymore. We don't know how to define adulthood or maturity, so just drive. 
Marshall McLuhan is a professor who foresaw prophetically the impact that media would have on our culture. He's famous for the phrase, the medium is the message. Probably heard that at some point. He's also said, we become what we behold. We become what we behold. What we spend our time looking towards, aspiring to, gazing at, worshiping, shapes us, forms us. We become what we behold. And so this shift in our culture is important. Because if we have nothing to behold, if we have nothing to look towards, what does that say about what we will become? Exactly. <laughs> now, this is a, this is a question that, that draws us right back into the big themes of this Pilgrim's series, these, these themes of formation, and, and the big word that we've been unpacking is this word discipleship. And, and the argument that we've been making is this. The Psalms of Ascent, Psalm 120 to 134, are extremely helpful in, in shaping our understanding and this conversation of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. They remind us that discipleship is a journey, right? We're, we're moving towards something. We're not arriving somewhere. We're moving towards something. It is intentional. You can't drift into the ways of Jesus. And then it is communal. We are formed in and by community. And we've been using this really big definition, right? Discipleship as formation into a way of life. And when we think about it this way, it, it, it reminds us we are all being formed, we are all being shaped by something, whether we are aware of it or intentional about it or not. So this question, what do you behold, is an important discipleship question because, again, what you behold will shape you. Maybe the, another way of thinking about it is if you're wondering what is really discipling you, think about, pay attention to what it is you behold, what you look up to. This is where our psalm begins. Verse 1, to you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Now if you've been here for this series, this might sound a little bit familiar. This, this echoes some of the language from Psalm 121. Remember that? I lift up my eyes to the hills from where does my help come? In that psalm, we learned that people at that time were looking to all kinds of different hills, which is to say they were looking to many different gods for help. And so what Psalm 121 does is it affirms that the only real help that we will find is in Yahweh, the one true God, Psalm 121, verse 2. Now here, two psalms later, that question, where does my help come from, where do I look for my help, has become a statement. To you I lift up my eyes. And it's again important to remember the larger context here that these songs were sung by Hebrew pilgrims who were going to Jerusalem for one of the three major festivals, Pentecost, Passover, and Tabernacles. And those were intense uh, you know, kind of high points in the year, but then there was the rest of the year, right? And over the course of the year, in the times in between the festivals, they would have had a variety of forces competing for their time and attention, just like there are a variety of forces competing for our time and attention. They faced economic pressures, you know, the reality of working difficult uh, jobs that required hard labor and took up a lot of time. There were families to be raised, extended family to care for, local issues and relationships, the drama of living uh, in community in a village with other people. 
There were political enemies who might come and attack them. And then there were these false gods, these alternative forms of worship, tempting and enticing them all the time. So these pilgrimages were an important moment in the year. It was a time to recalibrate. Their eyes may have started looking at other things. Their eyes may have drifted in another direction. They may have started to behold something other than Yahweh. And so these moments, this journey, the songs that they sang focused their eyes, recalibrated their attention back to the one true God. Which returns us once again to the importance of intentionality, a major theme in this series, in this conversation. If we are not careful, our eyes will drift. And we will begin to behold whatever it is that's going on around us. And so we need, like these pilgrims, we need these moments where we recalibrate. Where we intentionally set our eyes on God. Some of us do this through daily practices or disciplines, reading scripture, through prayer. We certainly hope that, that this happens for you in discovery groups, our smaller groups meeting all around Davis moments to recalibrate with one another. Sometimes this might happen in a conversation with a good friend, someone who can ask you a question that really gets to the heart of what's going on in your life. And then, of course, this should also happen when we're here together on Sundays. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Psalm 122 is all about why we gather for worship on a regular basis to, in part, recalibrate, right? To make sure our eyes are beholding the one true God. Now, verse 1 speaks of God in a general sense, the one enthroned in heaven. God's not named here in any personal way. And yet, a couple of really important observations to be made at this point. The first is this, the eyes, and this is pretty obvious, but the eyes are lifted up, right? Which is to say that the attention is focused upwards, away from what's happening right in front of us or even inside of us. Many of us spend a lot of time looking inward. This is certainly the journey that Mercedes is inviting us to take. Others of us were very focused on our immediate surroundings. Who's here? What's going on? What's happening right around me? Now, none of that is bad necessarily, right? We need to do some self-examination. It's good to know what's going on inside. And we need to be paying attention to those who are around us. But far too much of our time and attention gets focused in those directions. And so we must regularly look up. Move our attention off of ourselves, off of what is happening right here in this moment and look up. And it's interesting because this is a question that we still ask each other, right? Who do you look up to? Who do you admire? Your parents? Uh, a friend, your spouse, a mentor, someone in your field or your career, Steph Curry. <laughs> Who do you look up to? There's something in us that wants to look up, that wants to admire, that wants to behold. And so Psalm 123 is, is making the case for us. Yahweh is a God who is worthy of being looked up to. So the attention is upward, and then the attention is on the throne. And a throne is a seat of power and authority. This song reminds us, reminds the pilgrims who are singing it, that the ultimate authority in our lives is not ourselves. 
is not our peers. It is God, the one who is enthroned in heaven. And this is a tough one because we struggle with submitting to authority. This idea of having authority over us, right? But again, Psalm 123, trying to make the case that Yahweh is worth submitting to. Look at verse 2. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. So here's another analogy we don't really like. (laughs) Servant to master, maidservant to mistress, us to the Lord our God. Again, we struggle with submitting to authority. And yet, this relationship is so important to having a correct understanding of ourselves and of God. Again, remember back to Psalm 122. In that psalm, we saw this word peace. It was used several times, and we learned that that word in Hebrew is the word shalom. Shalom, and uh, this is going to be a little bit of review, but hang with me here. Shalom is the right ordering of God's creation. It's how God created the world to function at its best. It's, it's what God is looking at when he looks at all that he has made in Genesis chapter 1 and says, this is good, this is good, this is very good. This is shalom, everything in its right and proper place. Another way of thinking about this is that shalom is a hierarchy of right relationships with God at the top of that hierarchy and then humans and then creation. If you think about our place within that, to live a shalom life is to be in right relationship with God, with other human beings, and with the rest of the world that God has made. So almost by definition, right relationship to God places us in submission to him because he is at the top of that hierarchy. Psalm 123 is helping us reorder our relationships, reminding us of our proper place within God's creation. He's the master. We are his servants. And as hard as that may be to hear, this is actually the beginning of the answer to the melees of our post-aspirational culture. You see, when we make ourselves the center of the action, when we put ourselves on the throne... When we deny the existence of any kind of authority, we begin to lose the truth of our identity, our purpose, what we were really intended to be. And we become our own masters and we become enslaved to ourselves. But again, our true, originally intended purpose was and is to serve God. And so to have this sort of posture towards God is the only way to make sense of our lives. Now, let's keep going. At the end of verse 2, We're told that these pilgrims were looking to God till he has mercy upon us. And this theme of mercy, it it, it continues through the second half of the psalm. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have had more than those who are at ease or, or of the contempt of the proud. Now, here we get some insight into one of those pressures that these people were feeling. One of the reasons they needed this intentional recalibration of their eyes back onto God is because they'd gotten focused on the contempt and scorn that they were experiencing, which we can probably resonate with, right? Now, we aren't given much explanation here about this contempt, where it's coming from or what exactly it was like, but we do know that its source was people who were proud and people who had life easy. 
Now, we also don't know exactly when this psalm was written, but throughout its story, Israel always was facing scorn and contempt from someone, somewhere, sometimes from its own people, its own king, its own rulers, other times from outside forces. There are many, many warnings in the Old Testament given to the proud and the comfortable. One example from the book of Amos, woe to those who are at ease in Zion and to those who feel secure on the mountains of Samaria. That's that same word, ease, used here in Amos, same word in Psalm 123. You get the sense that, that maybe there were rich, powerful people that saw the pilgrimages as an opportunity to make some money, to pad their wallets. And so perhaps these pilgrims were uh, were experiencing that exploitation. We don't really know exactly what the source of the contempt is. But what we do know, and what this psalm has far more to say about, is their response to it. Pilgrims who sang this song made the wise choice of looking to Yahweh for mercy, for help. One commentator says it this way, Psalm 123 prays us from oppression to freedom. But it's freedom to serve a better master. Psalm 123 praises from oppression to freedom, but freedom by serving a better master. Now, quick side note. This is for those of you who have maybe been in church for a while, who have been uh, involved in the life of a church, who have maybe been serving for a while. Sometimes we get to the point where we feel burned out or burdened by serving within the church. And there may be a lot of different reasons for that, but I I would wonder if maybe you're feeling that way because you've been serving the wrong master. You've been serving yourself. You've been trying to make someone happy. You're trying to justify yourself in some way. Maybe you've been serving the wrong master. Now notice that the word here in Psalm 123 is servant, not slave. Notice that the picture that Psalm 123 paints for us is not one of suspicion, dread, resentment, fear, duty, obligation, fulfilling. There's a relationship here between the servant and the master, the maidservant and the mistress. And so the look is one of gladness, one of awe, one of dependence, one of a submission that's rooted in trust. The servant knows that his or her life is in good hands with this master. Safe in the governance of a good master because the good master is merciful. Mercy is unconditional regard for. It is a love that is completely gratuitous. It doesn't make any sense. The master gives himself over to the well-being of the servant shows mercy, then this brings us right to the heart of the gospel. One of the most remarkable things that Jesus says can be found in Mark chapter 10. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The master becomes the servant. The great reversal of the story of Scripture. And it's not just... For the sake of serving, this is to seek and to save the lost. This is God's mission, to save lost people, to bring his family back together, to restore 
shalom, restore his creation back to the way it was always intended to function. And so our role as servants is not about earning God's approval. It's about joining in what God is already doing. Joining him in his mission, finding out what he is up to and being a part of that in the world. So we receive his mercy and we accept that we are not the center, the authority, the master. And then our response is gratitude and submission and service. Now I want to be really clear here. This is not about guilting anybody into serving at Discovery, okay? To serve out of guilt is, again, to serve the wrong master. Jesus says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. You will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Again, if the idea of serving is onerous or tiring, it's because you've taken up the wrong yoke. You're serving the wrong master. Your eyes are looking somewhere else. But the posture of a servant is the appropriate response to receiving God's mercy. So I want to talk for just a moment about the difference between mechanics and posture when it comes to serving. There are, are an infinite number of expressions of service. And you know, here at Discovery, that can look like a lot of different things, whether that's set up and tear down or, or you know, the connections tent, working in kids, all different kinds of ways that we can do the mechanics of serving. But again, mechanics are different from posture. Someone can serve in a lot of roles, wear a lot of hats, do a lot of things, and yet not have the posture of a servant. Are you with me? So my hope is that serving at Discovery is a fun, easy, obvious way to live from this posture of a servant. But again, the mechanics are less important than the posture. But I do need to ask some questions. Are you serving? Where are you serving? What does that look like for you to live out this posture of a servant? Do you enjoy it? And then if you could serve in any capacity, what would that be? What would that look like? And if you would like to talk through that or explore some of the options, I would love to do that with you. I'm sure Roly would love to do that with you as well, come and, and, and talk to us about it. We'd love to help you find a great place for you to live out this posture of service. Because while the posture is important, the mechanics, you have to actually do it, right? To not serve is to miss out on a vital way that we relate to God, a vital aspect of what it means to be in community, to be a part of God's family, a vital expression of what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus. Now, here's the amazing good news. John 15, Jesus says, This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. And then pay attention no longer do I call you servants. For the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. 
For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. No longer do I call you servants, I have called you friend. What Mercedes gets right in the Grow Up campaign ads is the angst that many, many of us feel. What is the point of all this? What is the purpose of life? Is there anything worth giving myself to? And the story of Jesus answers those questions with an emphatic yes. Yes, there is something worth giving your life to. There is something worth beholding. God calls you friend. And this is both the the freedom and the challenge of the gospel, the freedom of friendship, that we get to have this intimate interaction and relationship with God. And yet this challenge to love. He says the greatest love is to lay down our lives for each other. So we love and we serve and we give ourselves away because Jesus, out of his great grace and mercy, loved and served and gave himself away. Now as we get ready for communion and uh, a little bit more worship here before we come to a close, I wanted to end with a story that I think ties some of this together. This is a story about my friend Cuban John. John is Cuban and named John, so that's how that nickname happened. (laughs) And uh, he and I uh, met, our paths crossed, when I was in Boston doing campus ministry. So John is a Miami native, born and raised in in the Miami area, and after he graduated from college, he got involved uh, in uh, a career in in event production. And he did, uh, he worked in clubs and even went on tours uh, with bands from time to time, and and so it was a part of this lifestyle that was, was hard and late nights and partying and drugs and alcohol and all that kind of stuff. And after a while, that began to uh, grate on him, and he, he felt like he, he needed a reset. So he applied to grad schools, and he ultimately got into Northeastern in Boston. And again, that's where, <clears throat> that's where our paths crossed. John started his program in January. Kid from Miami, starting school in Boston in January. So it only took him a couple of days to go, what have I done? <laughs> what have I gotten myself into? And he really began questioning this decision. He began to, to wonder, what, have, what am I doing here? I'm all by myself. I'm in this program with students who are much younger than me. This is a weird city, and it is really cold. And so about a month into it, on a very, very, very cold February Sunday morning, he's wandering around the city of Boston, asking these questions, wondering, what is he doing here? What is he doing with his life? Do I want to continue with this program? Even questioning whether he wanted to go on living. And he walks by the Hilton in downtown Boston and decides to just pop into the lobby because, it, you know, maybe he can get warm for a few minutes. And when he walks in, he sees a sign for the church that we were a part of. And so he, he had had some church background and experience and figured, well, at least I could just go in there and kind of sit and, and maybe just have some space and, and again, get, get a little bit warmer. So he comes and, uh, you know, he's greeted by a friendly person and he sits in the back row and 
in that service, God begins to work on his heart and talk to him and, and soften him up a little bit. And there was this moment towards the end of the service. At that church, we celebrated communion at the end every week, the same way that we do here at Discovery. And, uh, and John kind of felt like he needed to respond to what God was doing in his heart in that moment. And so he got in the line to make his way up to the front for communion. Now, the interesting part of this is that John had, again, a little bit of church experience from his younger days, and in the two churches that he had been a part of, he had been told, you may not take communion here. One of them excluded him from taking communion because he wasn't a, an, a member, and then the other one said, you need to quit this partying and this, you know, this lifestyle that you're living, and then you can come back and take communion with us. So John's standing in line, and the whole time he's in line, he's just, he's like looking over his shoulder, wondering who's going to tap me on the shoulder and tell me to go back and sit down. But no one does this, and he eventually makes it up to the front, and the way that uh, we did communion there is there was actually a person who would serve you the, the bread and the juice. And so John gets up there, and for the first time, for the first time in his life, he gets to take that bread representing Jesus' body broken for him, God's grace and mercy in this tangible form, and he dips it into the cup, representing Jesus' blood spilled for him, God's grace and mercy, and he takes and eats. He can't believe this is actually happening, and he, gets, he just went all in. He got very involved in the life of that church, and he started serving in a lot of different ways, but primarily on the soundboard and doing some production stuff. But there was this one, uh, there was this one Sunday where this, this happens sometimes in church. Someone didn't show up. And so he gets a tap on the shoulder. Hey, can you help serve communion today? And he didn't think too much about it in the moment. He just says, sure, I'll do that. And so, you know, we go through the opening worship and the teaching, and then it's time to serve communion. He gets up there. And he's not on the screen anymore, but John's a He's a big guy, bald head, big beard, kind of a menacing dude. And uh, he's up there holding this plate and this cup. And as people start coming, it dawns on him what is happening. That his whole life he'd been excluded from this table. And now he's participated in this. He's experienced this. And now he gets to serve it to someone else. And this big man just starts weeping. As he serves people communion. And afterwards, he came up to me and he said, Dude, I don't know what happened. Like, I just lost it. I'm so, and he like is very apologetic about this. I'm so sorry that I cried. And I am not great at these kinds of moments, but I think I actually said the right thing this one time. I said, Don't worry about it. I think that's how we're supposed to do it. When we behold the goodness and grace and mercy of God who came as a servant to save us from sin and death, what other response is there but tears and gratitude and serving, offering it to someone else? Let's pray. God, we are um, grateful that you did not consider equality 
with God something to be held on to, but you sent Jesus, your son, to take on the role of a servant. He emptied himself, becoming a man, so that he could, he could take on sin and death and overcome it, so that we can have right relationships, so that we can experience shalom with you again. And God, I pray this morning for a, a couple different groups of people. I pray for those who have never experienced that before, that today would be the time, the moment where that grace and mercy shows up in their lives and they respond to that. They say yes to that. Then God, I pray for those who have been serving you, who have been, who have been doing the mechanics of a servant for a while. And it's become tiring it's become a burden in some way and I just pray that you would work on our hearts God to help us know if if we're really just serving the wrong master or if it if it's time to take a break or move into a different area of service God but help us to regain that posture of a servant God help us to have the heart of Cuban John who was so overwhelmed by your grace and mercy and acceptance of him that he, he couldn't do anything but serve other people. So, so God, again, we just pray that you would grow us in what it looks like to do that, to extend the grace and mercy that we have received to others. And may you use us to be a blessing to those who really need that grace and mercy in their lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.